We mingle nervously in the corridor outside the large hotel ballroom alley on Saturday morning. We don't know much about what's going to happen in the training about to begin. Most attended something called a guest seminar, special guest event, and learned some of the impressive things that seem to happen to people who take the ESD training. All but a few of us attended a three-hour pre-training the previous Monday in which the ground rules or agreements governing the training were discussed. We've been told we won't be able to pee, eat, or smoke for a long time and that knowledge keeps many of us occupied. Mingling with the early arrivals, we notice that underneath the occasional yawn a pleasant excitement of anticipation runs side by side with a nervousness and some people bordering on dread. Several people are afraid the training won't work for them. Actually, the cause of fear in most is probably the opposite. What if ESD works? What if we were to take the training and were to change? Become different. Lose interest in our present games, our familiar problems, our act, our enduring personal relationships. A terrifying thought. Being sophisticated and intelligent people, many of us engage in sophisticated and intelligent conversation, guaranteed to communicate nothing of our emotions and little of our intellect, but with style. How'd you get into this? Jack asks Jennifer. My daughter took the training and began keeping her room neat and clean. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, a friend of mine says he's increased his sales 30%. But what really impressed me was the guy seems to know what he's doing now. He's suddenly sure of himself. He tried to explain it to me, but it all comes out ESD gobbledygook. I know what you mean. My daughter has been so busy talking about creating spaces for me and her sisters and everybody else you'd think she was renting apartments. The doors of the training room open and a stony-faced young man with an ESC name tag pinned to his chest announces in clear, even tones. You may enter the training room now. There will be no talking in the training room. There will be no smoking in the training room. Go to the main table on the right and pick up your name tag. Name tags are arranged alphabetically by last names. On the left is a table where you are to leave all timepieces. Then you may enter the training room. There will be no talking in the training room. There will be no smoking in the training room. Go to the main table. We trainees bunch together at the entrance of the room like sheep at a barn and then file through past several other ESD assistants, all of whom seem robot-like, but who, in fact, reveal quite neutral expressions, robot-like only compared to the social smile expected. The name tags arranged alphabetically are picked up one by one by the trainees. Each proclaims in large letters the existence of Chuck, Marsha, Tina, Jim, and so on. In smaller letters, barely legible, are last names. Most people check their watches at the other table and then wander nervously through a second set of doors into a large meeting room in which 254 chairs are arranged in eight rows in a gentle arc facing a raised platform. The hotel room is extravagantly decorated. Chandeliers hang brightly from a plain white ceiling. On the platform, roughly 30 feet wide, 12 feet deep, and one foot higher than the floor are two high stools, a small lectern, a larger lectern with a pitcher and metal insulated jug, and two blackboards, one on each side of the platform, each angled slightly towards the center of the room. The lecturer's paraphernalia seems distinctly out of place among the chandeliers and shimmering curtains. ESD assistants keep informing those entering to take seats at the front and towards the center, and people file forward and begin filling seats. I don't really think I need this. A woman labeled Tina whispers after a while to Jean sitting beside her. I mean, I'm perfectly happy, but ESD did wonders for my ex-husband, and who knows, maybe it'll do something for me. My psychiatrist says he investigated ESD. Jean replies quietly. And couldn't find anything wrong with it. Coming from him, that rates as high praise. 
Why are you taking the training? Tina asks her neighbor to her right, a middle-aged man labeled Stan. Oh, I guess because my light's all fucked up. My wife and I split up a year ago and I've sort of lost a sense of direction. Whatever ESD does it seems to make people feel they know what's going on and what they want. That's true. My husband's going on a safari in Africa this summer, something he talked about for 15 years, and now suddenly he's actually doing it. When I My name is Richard Morrison and I'm here to assist your trainer. Suddenly booms out a voice over the room. A tall, slender man dressed in neat clothes with light blue shirt and unbuttoned collars standing on the platform, looking out at the audience. A hush falls over the room. The 254 trainees are now arranged neatly in the eight rows, each row with two middle sections of 11 seats each and two side sections of five or six seats each, the sections separated by three aisles each five feet wide. Trainees look up intently at Richard. Behind the trainees' chairs stand seven or eight assistants, three of whom have microphones in their hands. In back of them are two more assistants seated at two tables. At the back of the room are tables with pitchers of water and paper cups. It is now 8.36. Announces Richard in a loud voice. Your training has begun. Werner has developed certain ground rules for the training which you have agreed to follow. These ground rules exist for one reason. Because they work. Following them will permit you to get the most results from the training. We want you to choose to follow these ground rules. In fact, you have already made agreements with the SD. You have agreed not to bring timepieces into the room. If you have a watch or timepiece in your possession at this time, stand up now and go to the back of the room. An assistant there will take your watch and give you a ticket. Is there anyone in the room still possessing a watch? Two people raise their hands. One of them, a slim, attractive woman in her twenties, says to Richard in a soft voice, I've got a watch in my handbag, but I promised during the training not to look at it. You have agreed not to bring watches into the room. Go to the rear and hand in your watch. It's in my handbag. That is not the same as wearing it. The handbag is in the room. The watch is in the handbag. Your agreement is not to have a watch in the room. Take your watch to the back of the room. Flush, a woman abruptly turns away from Richard, picks up her handbag, and marches quickly to the back of the room. Look at the person sitting on each side of you. If you knew either one before this morning, raise your hand. Okay, good. With the person sitting on this side or the other, stand up and go to the back of the room. I've only known this person a few days. Just since the pre-training meeting. Does that count? If you are seated next to anyone you knew before this morning, raise your hand. The person sitting on this side of the other is to go to the back of the room. Three or four individuals, after a brief period of confusion, go to the back of the room where they are directed to new seats. You have all agreed to remain in this room as long as the trainer requires. There will be no bathroom breaks for anyone until the trainer says so, except for those with medical reasons, which we'll go into soon. There will be no smoking. There will be no reading in the room. There will be no note-taking or tape-recording devices in the room. No chewing of gum. There will be no talking. If you wish to communicate with the trainer or share something with the other trainees, raise your hand. If the trainer acknowledges you, you will stand up and wait until a microphone is brought to you by an assistant. You will take the microphone, hold it three inches from your mouth, and then communicate what you wish to communicate. Except when you have been acknowledged and are standing with the microphone, you will not talk. Is that understood? Yes, David. Stand up. Take the mic. Like... We went over all these agreements during the pre-training meeting, and frankly, I haven't paid 250 bucks to be reminded for half an hour that I can't smoke. Could we please begin the training? The training has already begun. I am here to assist the trainer and to remind you of all of the agreements you have made. It will take longer than half an hour. It seems pretty stupid to me. Being reminded of agreements always seems stupid to people who don't keep agreements. I get that you think it's stupid. Do you get that my talking now is part of the training? 
Someone said it's possible to get your money back sometime. Is that true? That is true. The trainer will eventually communicate to you about leaving and getting your money back. Good. Thank you. You will remain in your chairs at all times except when instructed to move from the chair by me or the trainer, or except when called upon to communicate. At the end of each break you will take a different seat. If you feel you have to vomit, raise your hand and an assistant will bring you a bag. If you need a tissue, raise your hand and an assistant will bring you a tissue. If you have to vomit, hold the bag close to your face and vomit. When you have finished vomiting, an assistant will take your bag and give you a fresh one. You will not be excused to go to the bathroom except during the specific breaks announced by the trainer. You may not smoke in this room. During the course of this training, the next 10 days, you will not drink alcohol or use any drug, hallucinogen, or other artificial stimulant or depressant unless you have a medical prescription and the drug is absolutely necessary for your health. We recommend you not practice any meditation during this period. Yes, Hank. It's part of my business to have a friendly glass of beer or wine or scotch with clients. Can I be excused from that particular part of the agreement? Your clients will survive if you do not have a beer. Keep the agreement. Thank you. Some of you, because of medical disabilities, are on what we call the special permissions list. Assistant Richard spends 15 minutes getting those who are on the special permissions list. A physician indicates they have to go to the bathroom regularly, for example, or take certain medication on a regular basis. To move to the back row center and those who were sitting there to rearrange themselves elsewhere in the newly vacated seats. There are several more questions on subjects like smoking, alcohol, vomit bags, knitting, being able to remove one's suit jacket, chewing gum, closing one's eyes, timing of the breaks, length of the stay's session, arranging for a rise home, the definition of meditation, and a reminder by Richard of two or three other minor agreements made by the trainees. And as suddenly as he had appeared, Richard marches off the platform down the center aisle to the back of the room. The platform is now vacant. The trainees remain respectfully if not fearfully silent. Nothing happens. The stage remains empty. A few stir restlessly, but most subdued by the long and repetitious reminder of the agreements and the frequent and often trivial questions about them sit quietly. As four, five, then six minutes pass, a nervous tension mounts. The silence deepens. An occasional car horn from outside the hotel is all that can be heard. And then, at last, a second man comes briskly up the same center aisle, mounts the platform, goes to the small lectern, and opens up a large notebook he has brought with him. He is young, in his early thirties, neatly dressed, dark and handsome. The name tag on his chest announces Don. He looks out over the audience briefly, his look neither friendly nor hostile, then looks down at his notebook and begins leafing through the pages. His pants are pressed so well a crease looks as if it could cut through paper. His shoes gleam. His shirt is open at the collar. He doesn't look like Werner Erhard. He studies his notebook at least a full minute, the silence deepening yet more. Then a second time, he looks out over the trainees. He looks to his right for a moment, then straight ahead at the center sections, and then to his left. At last he speaks his voice, like that of the assistant Richard, unnaturally loud, firm, and dramatic. My name is Don Mallory. I am your trainer. He pauses, and something about his total confidence and ease, the inordinate loudness of his voice, and the word trainer, seems to send a small shiver through several of the trainees. The trainer's face shows no expression whatever, neither of warmth nor of coldness. Amazingly, through the next several hours, it will never show any emotion. His voice, however, unlike those of the assistants, will vary, he will shout sometimes, he will be normally loud most of the time, he will lower his voice dramatically at others. He will mimic voices and play parts, but always his face will remain indifferent to everyone. I'm your trainer, and you are the trainees. 
I am here because my life works, and you are here because your lives don't work. He pauses and takes a single relaxed step to the right of his small letter and on which rests the notebook. He is looking slowly from right to left at the attentive trainees. Your lives don't work. You have great theories about life, impressive ideas, intelligent belief systems. You are all, every one of you, very reasonable in the way you handle life, and your lives don't work. You're assholes. No more, no less. And a world of assholes doesn't work. The world doesn't work. Just remember the madhouse of a city you've just come through to get here this morning, and you know the world doesn't work. Just look at your own fucking lives, and you know they don't work. You've paid $250 to take this training so your lives will work, and you'll spend most of the next 10 days doing everything you can to make the training not work, so your lives can go on peacefully not working. You've just paid $250 to be here, and you'll get nothing from this training. Trainer again pauses and paces back, now in front of the lectern. His dark eyes moving attentively over the trainees. Richard has just reminded you of the agreements you've made to participate in the training. And I can tell you from experience that we know that you all are going to break some of them. Most of you already have. We asked you not to talk in this ballroom after entering, and what happened? It's quite simple. You all break agreements. That's one reason your lives don't work. You all leave your lives under the theory that you're somebody special. A privileged character. And are thus free to cheat. On income taxes, stop signs wives, husbands, expense accounts, and certainly on little trivial agreements with ESD. Sure, you will say to yourself sometime next week, what's the big hassle about a little glass of wine? Or, why should I bother to do without a friendly joint? ESD is square and uptight, I don't have to play the game. It's not reasonable to keep an agreement when it won't seem to hurt anyone when you break it, and since you're all reasonable people, you'll break agreements. You'll all break them. You can't keep agreements, and your lives are so messed up, you don't even know that you can't keep agreements. You lie to yourself. The definition of a friend is somebody who agrees to go along with your lies if you'll go along with his. It's beautiful, and nobody's life works. The trainer's voice is penetratingly intense, cold, and he moves his eyes over the trainees, as if he were capable of looking through each one. I'm going to tell you what to expect in this training. There are two parts. I talk, then you talk. Right now it's I talk. I talk and you listen. But let me make one thing clear. I don't want any of you assholes to believe a word I'm saying. Get that. Don't believe me. Just listen. What you're going to experience during the next 10 days of this training is everything that you normally try hard not to experience. You're going to experience anger, fear, nausea, vomiting, crying. Submerged feelings that you lost touch with decades ago are going to come up. They're going to come up. Of course, you'll try hard to avoid them. Oh, oh, how you assholes will try to avoid your real feelings. You'll go through boredom, unconsciousness, sleep. You'll experience incredible resentment, rage even at me, at the other trainees, at the agreements. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to feel you have to piss in your pants. You're going to feel that if you don't get a cigarette or eat that piece of candy you snuck into the training, you're going to scream. You're going to feel that this training is the biggest rip since you last bought the Brooklyn Bridge. You're going to want to leave. Oh, oh, how you're going to want to leave. Anything, anything, anything. To avoid having to be here now with your actual experience. Anything to avoid having to give up your racket, give up your axe, your theories give up the beautiful, structured, reasonable, unworking mess you've made of your lives. You are going to experience the whole gamut of negative emotions until you begin to get that you'll do anything to keep from ending your acts and experiencing what's happening right here and now. You're also going to tell me all the rational reasons that what I say to you is stupid and I'm going to stand here and continue to call you an asshole and you are going to continue to be an asshole. The trainer pauses yet a third time and moves back behind the lectern with his notebook. Although he uses his arms to emphasize certain points during portions of his rap, they hang now loosely at his sides. 
When he gestures, he gestures. When he doesn't, his arms and hands seem totally at peace. The trainer seems utterly nerveless, without mannerisms or habits. If you don't think you can take all this, then I want you to get out. Go to the back of the room, turn in your name tag and get out. We'll refund you money in full. But if you choose to stay, then you're choosing to keep the agreements and to experience the anger and nausea and boredom I've just described to you. And if you choose to stay and keep your soul in the room and follow instructions and take what you get, then I'll guarantee that on next Sunday you'll get it. You may sleep half the time and be angry the other half. But if you just keep your soul here in the room and follow instructions, you'll get it. It will blow your minds. Not that you'll get better. You'll leave here exactly the same as when you began. Only you will be turned around 180 degrees. You see, one of your problems. You'll admit it may cause a certain amount of difficulty. Is that you're driving the car of your life, using the rearview mirror to steer by. You're zooming through life with both your hot little hands and your hot little eyes glued firmly to the rearview mirror. A few accidents and wrong turns can be expected. And some of you, ten days from now, will begin to talk about how ESD performs miracles, when all we do, in some cases, is introduce people to the possible usefulness of the steering wheel. Yes, Kirsten. Stand up. Take the mic. Kirsten, a slender brunette, stands up and, bright-eyed, speaks rapidly into the microphone. I'm an actress when I can get work in TV commercials and I'd like to share. Isn't that the word? That I'm both excited and nervous about being here. A girl friend of mine took ESD and it changed her life. It really has. But what I want to say is that I'm afraid I won't get it. Kirsten, all you have to do to get it is keep your soul in the room and stay with your experience. But I'm afraid my resistances are really tremendous. I mean, I'll try to do what- Don't try to do anything. You won't get it because you've tried to get it. You won't get it because you're intelligent and bright and reasonable. You won't get it because you're a good person. You'll get it for one simple reason. Werner has created a training so that you'll get it. Thank you. By the way, Kirsten has shown you what to do when you wish to say something. Now, I will tell you what to do after someone has finished communicating. You do this. It is called applauding. You will acknowledge each trainee who has finished speaking by applauding. Do you understand? I'm telling you all that you'll get it, but don't think it will be easy. You assholes have been messing up your lives for from 15 to 70 years, and we can be quite confident you'll do your best to mess up this training the way you mess up everything else. The first way you'll try to mess it up is to pretend you're here because your husband wants you to be here. Or your wife. Or your Uncle Henry is paying for it. Or the boss told you to take it. Or a magazine article said it would be good for your asthma. That's asshole thinking. If you stay in this training, I want you to get that. You're here because you choose to be here. Right here, right now, I want you to choose either to be here in the training or to get out. If you choose to stay, you're going to feel yourself insulted and harassed. You're going to get upset. You're going to want to leave, but you'll get it. But don't stay here because somebody told you to, or because a magazine article or psychiatrist recommended it. Stay here only because you choose to stay. Otherwise, get out. Do you get that? All right, yes, Jack, go ahead. Take the mic. Jack, a burly man with bushy hair and a colorful suit, stands up and speaks into the mic, his voice almost as loud as that of the trainer. I'm here because several people I respect, one of whom is a psychotherapist, recommended ESD, and their recommendation is good enough for me. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Do you choose now, on your own, to stay in the training? Well, frankly, from what I've heard so far, I well might not, but no matter how stupid it seems up to now, since they recommended it. You're an asshole, Jack. That kind of thinking leaves the responsibility squarely in the lap of your friends. We want you to take charge of your life. I am in charge. Then quit letting your friends run it. Do you choose, here and now, to stay in this room and take the training? Sure. I just said. And you choose to stay because you choose to stay. Do you get that? 
Not because Tom, Dick, and Harrow recommended that you stay, but because he choose to stay. Do you get that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I understand. Yeah, okay. I'm staying because I decided to stay. Good. Thank you. All right, assholes. Less than half you acknowledge Jack. I want to see every one of you acknowledge him. You can either applaud or throw money towards the stage. Either one. Audit. Let's hear it. Good. You're learning. Jack has chosen to stay. Big deal. I don't give a shit whether he stays or leaves. I don't give a shit whether any of you leave or not. There are 12,000 people waiting to take the training. It's your life's your aliveness that's at stake, not mine. My life works whether you take the training or go to a porno movie. It's up to you. It's up to you to choose to stay, to choose to transform your life. I'm not going to do it for you. Only you can do that. All I can do is play the trainer in a training. As a matter of fact, you're perfect just the way you are, but you can't get that yet. But in any case, we know you can't change your life trying the way you've been trying, because that's why your lives don't work. All you can do is choose to take the training, keep your soul in the room, follow instructions, and take what you get. Or you can get out. Now. Full money back. It's your life, your choice, not mine. The trainer pauses and looks slowly over the room. Two hands are raised. Tom, stand up. Take the mic. Tom, a young man, bearded, with glasses and prayer beads, has trouble holding the mic, then speaks. I was told this training was a Zen-like enlightenment program, and instead all I've heard for an hour is a very uncentered person, namely you, making a lot of stupid generalizations that may apply to some people, but certainly not to all. I don't understand what's going on. That's great, Tom. You've already made more progress than most of the people in the room. If you, assholes, think you understand what's going on, you're living your assholeness to its fullest. And you, Tom, have come into this training with a beautiful theory about what ESD is. It's a Nike Enlightenment program. And you've decided not to pay attention to anything that doesn't fit your beautiful theory. Guess how much you're going to get out of it, going through life that way. Maybe I'm mistaken about what ESD is supposed to be. But you're all wrong when you talk about nobody's life working. I know false generalization when I hear one and I don't like it. Fine. I get that. I'm going to modify my false generalization. All the trainees accept your assholes because they live in belief systems that prevent them from experiencing aliveness and having their lives work. You're the exception. You've got a beautiful belief system, and so we will agree to call you a beautiful asshole. You can call me all the names you want. The fact that you have to insult me is simply a symptom of your not being a centered person. I get that. The trainer says, walking to the edge of the platform and staring down at Tom, who is standing in the third row. You believe I'm not a centered person because I call people who are assholes, assholes. Right? Tom, that's just another theory of yours. Another part of your belief system. Your mind tells you. Centered people do not call other people assholes. That's your belief. Great. I get that. Now you can sit down, knowing that I know you believe that I'm uncentered. And I can continue to stand up and be the trainer who reminds you people that you're here because your lives don't work. Okay. What good does it do to keep harping on the fact that our lives don't work? I thought ESD was supposed to create safe spaces so people could talk about themselves and you put down everybody who opens his mouth. The space in here is safe. The trainer says, stepping down off the platform and standing in front of the first row, opposite Tom. There's nothing wrong with being an asshole. Some of my best friends were assholes. In fact, all of my best friends are assholes. And I don't put people down. I just make statements. If some of these statements make you feel down, that's your contribution, not mine. It just seems to me that a Zen master wouldn't spend the first hour of Darshan calling his disciples assholes. I wouldn't count on that, Tom. I've heard of some pretty tough Zen masters. A lot of them I know, when they're not batting the monks over the head, certainly do a lot of yelling. But look, if you want a Zen master, find a Zen master. 
If you want ASC, take ASC. The reason I keep telling you assholes that your lives don't work is simple. Your lives do not work. If they did, you wouldn't be here. You are carrying around a whole lot of beliefs that try to convince you that your lives do work. That you are right. That you are right on. Unless. A tiny glimmer of your stuffness. Of the unworkingness of your lives gets through to you. You will continue to hide in the lies you live by. The lies which prevent your lives from working. But you can't change people by lecturing at them. That is right. I get that. That's why I tell you not to believe a word I'm saying. Then why are you saying them? I'm saying them because Werner has found that the trainer saying them works. So we just sit here and take it? We stand up and take it. Either way. It works either sitting or standing. It probably works a bit better for people who stand. Erect assholeness is always easier to see than seated assholeness. Jesus. You are one arrogant bastard. Great. Anything else, Tom? No. I guess arrogant bastard sums it up. Thank you, Tom. Okay, you assholes. You are not applauding, right? Either coins or clapping, I want you all to acknowledge Tom. Let's hear it. Jean, stand up. Jean, an attractive, matronly woman in her late thirties, conservatively dressed, takes the microphone and speaks. I don't understand why there's all this fuss about applauding everyone who speaks. Couldn't we do without it? No, we can't do without it. But why do we have to do it? You have to do it because it's one of the ground rules. Look, I want everyone in here to know that he or she can stand up and say whatever he wants. And no matter what he says, when he's finished, we're going to acknowledge him with applause. We're not applauding someone because you agree with him. Shit, that would just be assholes applauding assholeness. But rather to acknowledge his sharing with us, his experience or his point of view. Whether you like it or not, that's all. It seems silly to applaud someone who simply asks if he can take his suit jacket off, like that man did earlier. That's okay, Jean. Learn to live with silliness. That's what ESD is all about. Thank you. Hey, where do you think you're going? A young woman has arisen from the front row and walked hastily across the front of the audience towards an exit in the rear. Looking pale and holding her hands to her mouth, she is led back to her seat in the front where she stands unsteadily. I'm going to vomit. I'm going to vomit. Take the mic, Marie. I want to go to the bathroom. I'm going to vomit. The assistant just gave you a bag. If you have to vomit, vomit in the bag. Hold the mic for her, Richard. I don't know how to use it. You take the bag in your hands and you hold it up near your face. You can't miss. Go ahead, do that. I can't. Do it. I can't breathe. Hold the fucking bag a few inches away from your face. I won't be able to hit it. I don't care how good a fucking shot you are. Put the bag closer to your face. I won't be able to breathe. If you want to breathe, breathe. If you want to vomit, hold the bag close to your face and vomit. Please let me go to the bathroom. Sit down. Play yo-yo with your vomit bag and don't try and see how good a shot you are. Thank you. That girl's sick. Shut up. If you want to speak in this room, you raise your hand and you don't speak until I call on you and the assistant has brought your mic. You may then stand and speak anything you want. Get that, assholes? The question is answered with a complete silence. Then a hand is raised in the back of the room. All right. John, stand up. Take the mic. The man who stands is the same one who shouted out earlier. He is an older man with thinning grey hair, glasses, and a slightly stooped posture. I see no reason, whatever, for you to be so rude to people. You could have told that girl how to use that bag without insulting her, and making fun of her every step of the way. Got it, John. But let's see what happened. Marie wants to vomit. We give her a bag. We throw in free instructions on how to use it. You feel like standing up and defending outraged womanhood. Marie feels like she has to vomit. We will treat you both the same. You get a mic. 
She gets a paper bag. I'm not sick. Great. No vomit bag for John. You could be polite. You could have helped her. Sure. That's just the game Marie's probably used to having people play when she creates a sickness. Poor Marie. Has to puke. Poor baby. In ESC, if somebody wants to puke, we say fine. Here is a bag. A fun. Amazing how few people end up actually choosing to use it. John stands uncertainly for a moment and then sits. Thank you for sharing, John. I think we failed to acknowledge Jean, who was talking before Marie tried to leave the room. Would you acknowledge Jean? All right then. Let me remind you, before I go on, that I don't want you to believe a word I say over this weekend. Just listen. Because the reason your lives don't work is that you're all living mechanically in your belief systems instead of freshly in the world of actual experience. You don't look at reality and then construct conclusions, no. No. You did that decades ago. You assholes are roboting through life with your conclusions, and with your conclusions developed decades ago, you're constructing reality. No wonder you've lost all aliveness. No wonder your lives don't work. If we put a rat in a maze with four tunnels, and always put cheese in the fourth tunnel after a while, that rat will learn always to go to the fourth tunnel to get cheese. A human will learn to do that too. You want cheese? Sip, sip, sip down the fourth tunnel, there is the cheese. Next day you want cheese. Sip, sip, sip down the fourth tunnel, and there is the cheese. Now, after a while, the great god in the white suit moves the cheese to another tunnel. Sip, sip, sip goes the rat to the fourth tunnel. No cheese in the fourth tunnel. The rat comes out. Goes down the fourth tunnel again. No cheese. Rat comes out. Goes down the fourth tunnel again. No cheese. Comes out. Down the fourth tunnel again. No cheese. Comes out. Eventually the rat will stop going down the fourth tunnel and look elsewhere. Now the difference between rats and human beings is simple. The human beings will go down that fourth tunnel forever. Forever. Human beings come to believe in the fourth tunnel. Rats don't believe in anything. They are interested in cheese. But the human being develops a belief in the fourth tunnel, and he comes to make it right to go down the fourth tunnel, whether there is cheese in it or not. The human being would rather be right than get his cheese. And you people are, unfortunately, human beings, and not rats, and thus, all of you are right. That's why for a long time now, you haven't been getting any cheese, and your lives are not working. You've got too many beliefs, and too many fourth tunnels. Well, that's fine. That's why you're here. To blow up all your life denying, cheese-denying beliefs so that you can begin locating what you really want. We're going to help you throw away whole belief systems. Totally tear you down so you can put yourself back together. In a way that lets life work. But don't think it's going to be easy. You've been dedicated assholes for decades, and you know you're right. Your whole life is based on the principle that you're right. And the fact you're miserable. That your life doesn't work. That you haven't gotten much cheese since you were in the fourth grade, that makes no difference. You're right. Your fucking belief systems are the best that money can buy, or minds can create. They're the right belief systems, and the fact that your life is all messed up is just an unfortunate and unrelated accident. Bullshit. You're correct. Intelligent, reasonable belief systems are directly related to your not getting any cheese. You'd rather be right than be happy. And you've been marching down fourth tunnels for years to prove it. You know you've been spending your time in empty tunnels because every now and then accidents will happen. You experience some cheese. A freedom, a joyfulness, an aliveness so different from your usual flow that you wonder whether someone slipped some acid in your morning orange juice. And wow, you say to yourself, this is great. I'm going to hold on to this. And you reach out to get a good grip on it. And pop, it disappears. The harder you try to get it back again, the worse you feel. You assholes. You'll never get it by trying to get it where it just was. The great god of life in the white suit is always moving the cheese. 
You'll never be happy by trying to be happy because your trying is totally channeled by your beliefs about the right place for cheese to be. As soon as you have an idea about what you want and exactly where it is, you've ruined your chance of being happy and alive because an idea of belief destroys experience and you ain't never going to be alive unless you live in the realm of experience. Yes, Betty. Stand up. Betty, an attractive young woman with red hair and bright orange slacks, stands up and in a definite Bronx accent speaks into the mic. I don't get why an idea about what I want should make it so tough for me to get it. Oh, you'll get it all right. You got an idea? About what you want? For sure. What is it? I'd like to have my own house in the country for myself and my children. Fine. But you say that the idea will stop me from getting it. The idea will stop you from experiencing it. You may get a house in the country all right. But as long as you hold on to the idea of the kind of house that will be right for you, and the types of experience the house will give you, you'll never experience the actual house you're in, and because you don't experience it, you'll never be happy with it. You'll spend your time trying to live in the house you have a belief in, and never get to enjoy the real mud, on the real rug, in the real house. But I don't see what my wanting a house has to do with looking for cheese at Fork Tunnel. Well, Betty, that's not an easy thing to see, because you, yourself, got stuck in your particular Fork Tunnel a long time ago. Exactly why you think all the cheese is located in a house in the country is not something we can trace right now. There are a lot of people living now in the country who think that if they lived in the city, life would be better. Later, when we do what we call the truth process, you may want to take as your item the tenseness or dissatisfaction you feel living where you do now, and maybe you'll be able to re-experience what's up with you about houses. Why can't I believe that living in the country would be better for me and my children than living in the goddamn Bronx? You may someday experience that country living is better, but until you've learned to make it in the Bronx, you'll never make it in the country. Every belief you have about something kills it. Have a belief about the kind of house you want. Boom. No house. Have a belief about God. Boom. No God. Experience, you assholes. You leave so much in your fucking minds, you probably never lived in a house in your whole life. Thank you, Betty. Okay. Sherry, stand up. Jerry is a big man with a brush cut. He must weigh close to 240 pounds and he looks like a truck driver except that his voice, when he now speaks, is quite fluent and precise. That is the most ridiculous piece of nonsense you've spoken so far. Which is that? That having a belief in God kills God. Gets him every time. One must have a belief in God in order eventually to experience him. One must not have a belief in God in order ever to experience him. But that's utter nonsense. All of the most religious figures in history have had great belief in God. Bullshit, Jerry. They had experience of God. Do you have a belief in the existence of human beings? That's a silly question. You're goddamn right, it's a silly question. You've experienced human beings directly. You know them. Beliefs are totally unnecessary. But I can have a belief in God and experience him too. If you experience God, really experience God, you'll probably find that you can't come up with a single worthwhile belief about what you've experienced. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote 73 volumes about God. Well, we can be damn sure he didn't have much time to experience him then. Look, Jerry, don't give me your goddamn belief systems. They don't work. If you want to share with me your actual experience of God that I would be interested in. Ideas about God are deadly. They are so deep in the scale of non-experience they are less substantial than ghosts. I believe God exists. That belief does not cause God to cease to exist. For you, as long as you live in your belief, it does. Jerry, it does. Let me tell you a little story. A friend of mine was studying and meditating with a Hindu yogi. And one day, after he'd been fasting for about 12 hours and meditating about 6 hours, he suddenly experienced a rush of the most dazzling and all-pervasive light he'd ever even vaguely heard about. He was overwhelmed. I mean, this guy tripped on every drug known to God in Timothy Leary. 
I never experienced anything like the long, overwhelming flood of light and joy he got that afternoon. So, this guy naturally tells his best friend about his experience, his yogi being at that time in Europe. You saw God, the friend tells him enthusiastically. And if you fast some more and meditate more, you'll see him again. Well, my friend, who may have had a genuine experience of something we might want to call God, now develops a few definite ideas about God. He's bright. He's glowing. He's overwhelming. He comes after meditation and fasting. So he puts these beliefs into practice and guess what? Trina pauses, looking slowly over the trainees and then stopping with his eyes back on Jerry. Guess what, Jerry? God ceased to exist. My friend has been meditating and fasting now off and on for two years since the experience, and he's got no further experiences of God. Of course he's got ideas about God, beliefs about God, but ask him if he trade them all in for one single minute of the experience he once had, and you're damned right he would. Jerry is silent now for almost a half minute. What did the yogi say to your friend about this matter? The yogi just said, Good, you saw God. Don't try looking for him there again. Remember, Jerry, God gets around. If we try to pin him to light, or mountaintops, or guys nailed to crosses, or skinny brown guys in loincloth sitting in the lotus position, we're just being assholes. Later today, I'll make it very clear. Those things we are really certain about. The things we really know are way beyond belief systems. The only things people believe in are things they don't know. Ghosts. Flying saucers. Reincarnation. A perfect society. A faithful husband. But we have to have beliefs. Who says so? I do, for one. Well, that's one of your beliefs, Jack, and that's one of the reasons you're all fucked up. But you have a belief. That all beliefs are bad. Who says so? I do. Well, that's just another of your beliefs, Jack, and just another reason that you're alive. But don't you believe that all beliefs are bad? No, asshole. Do you believe that most beliefs are bad? No, asshole. What do you believe? Nothing. That's what I've been saying for the last hour. But you either believe something is true, or you believe that it's false. You may believe. Not me. You've got to believe. I don't believe a thing I'm saying, and I don't want you to either. Oh, well, then you're just playing with words. That's right, Jack. I'm playing with words, and my life works. And you believe in words, and that's why they play with you and run your life. I still don't get it. That's fine, Jack. Don't worry about it. If you got it now, think how bored you'd be for the next three days. But you're telling me I've got to destroy my belief system, and my whole life is based on my intellectual and moral beliefs, and on my feeling that I should achieve the most intelligent beliefs. You'll never get me to give them up. If that's what the training is all about, I'll never get it. Oh, you'll get it all right, Jack. Don't worry about that. Just keep your soul in the room, follow the instructions, and take what you get. Thank you, Jack. Look at people. You'll all get it because I'm taking responsibility for communicating it to you. Right now, you're all messed up about what communication is all about. You think you do your best to tell someone something, and if they don't get it, tough shit. Or that you listen hard, and if you don't get it, it's the other guy's fault. In here, communication means taking responsibility when you're communicating to see that the other person gets your communication. If he doesn't, it's your responsibility. And, when you listen, you get what the other person gives, and then observe what you yourself may add. For example, Tom, over here, just called me an arrogant bastard. I got that. Let's say, for the sake of discussion, that when he called me that, I observed, I experienced a tiny rush of anger. If I felt that anger then, that was something I added. I would have to take total responsibility for the anger. I've been calling all of you assholes. Fine. Get it and note what you add to it. Resentment. Undo. Bewilderment. Depression. Amusement. Hatred. Shame. Whatever it is you add to being called an asshole. Whatever you add. That's part of your assholeness. Your mechanicalness. Just look at it. You resent my calling you an asshole. Great. You resent me. No big deal. Happens in the best of families. 
Just observe it and note it's yours. Not mine. I give you the words. You're an asshole. The rest is all your creation. Time passes during the training and no single trainee remains conscious through every moment. One of the impressive characteristics of the trainer is that he, no matter how boring or silly someone's objections may be, always seems to pay perfect attention. He seems able not only to listen to the words but also to understand the emotional and attitudinal content latent within the words. Notions are hammered in over and over, objections voice over and over, and we, trainees, shrift into unconsciousness and then out again. Some trainees doze, many become annoyed over what seems endless, repetition of trivial argument or ego-centered sharing. Reasonableness. Yes. Reasonableness. The trainer is shouting in response to a trainee. He strides now to a blackboard and draws a horizontal line across the middle of the board. At the bottom, he writes in big capital letters the word reasonableness. That's one of the lowest forms of non-experience. He says and writes the word non-experience just under the horizontal line and at the far right of the board. And you people have been living most of your lives being reasonable and thus, you've been living in the realm of non-experience. So what do we try to do about it? Asks the trainee, Lester, a tall man in his early twenties with long brownish hair who has been involved in an exchange with the trainer. You don't try to do anything. Doing nothing will eventually work, but you can't get that yet. In fact, in your misguided efforts to achieve real experience, you do, in fact, occasionally, rise to slightly higher levels of non-experience. Deciding. Hoping. Helping. And he writes these three words on the board above the reasonableness, but below the horizontal line. But what's above the line? Above the line is an experience said experience. And the first step above that line, the first real form of experience involves simply accepting. If you want to get out of the realm of non-experience and experience, you've got to stop being reasonable. Stop making decisions. Stop hoping. And just accept what is. No more. No less. Accept what is. When you do that, the light bulb of experience is turned on. Until you do, it's turned off. It seems to me that all experience is experience. How can there be anything called a non-experience experience? Since all you've been doing for the last decade, Lester is non-experienced. It's tough to recall the distinction. I get that. But look, at the simplest level, let's pretend you're making love to a woman. Okay, by me. You're on top of her, banging away. Okay. Got it. And you're being reasonable. Oh, Jesus. You're wondering whether the woman thinks the fact that you're bowling her represents a commitment on your part to her. While you reasonably consider this, are you experiencing your experience? Not what I'd rather be experiencing. And then you move to the next level. You decide to make love with ostensible physical ardor, but without verbal communication. You decide to bang her good, but mum's a word. While you're deciding, are you experiencing? No. You hope she's going to have an orgasm. While you're hoping, are you experiencing? No. No. And we can also bet that every second you're wasting on hoping decreases the likelihood that she will have an orgasm. Finally, you decide to use your great lovemaking techniques freshly developed from pages 50 through 149 of The Joy of Sex and help your girlfriend have an orgasm. While you're busy trying to help her, are you experiencing? Not when I'm thinking about helping her. But when I'm actually helping her, it seems... It might be pretty groovy. It might be, Lester. And if it is, it's because you've gone beyond hope. You've stopped hoping. And are now just being there with the woman. Accepting what's happening and not believing, deciding, hoping, or helping a damn. Do you get that? Yeah, okay, I get that. But if just being there with a woman is in the realm of experience, then I want to lay claim to having lived a few times in the realm of experience. That could be, Lester. Certainly one reason men and women are attracted to sex is that it's one of those experiences. Almost getting killed is another one. That can shock people into lightness. 
but don't count on it. Most people don't even experience fucking. A lot of you assholes haven't fucked since you were 16. I don't care how many times you've jumped from one bed to another. You've been fucking in your minds. In fact, one reason that assholes go from one sex experience to another is that you're incapable of having a genuine experience with one person. So you think maybe 16 might do it. The problem is that, sometime or another, you had a really fine experience. A marvelous, shared love experience. And you know what you've done. You've used it to murder every potentially similar experience since. You've taken that marvelous shared lovemaking and put it in a little silver box, and every time your life brings you something similar, your asshole mind says, Well, this may be almost as good as the one in the silver box. Let's look and see. And you try open the silver box while you're making love, and take a peek. You spend so much time comparing that you never experience what's happening here and now. I get what you're driving at. But isn't that most of life a blend of experience and non-experience? Experience is either on or off. There ain't no such thing as slightly experiencing something. Who the hell ever heard of someone slightly experiencing a pain in the back? You're either feeling it or you're not. Let me finish this shot on the board by listing the other modes of experience beyond accepting. Next is witnessing or observing. And then participation or sharing. And finally, up to something we call sourcing. Don't worry about all of these now. They're all in the realm of fully experienced experience. That's all you have to know now. Now, if we make a scale of 1 to 100, we might say that reasonableness is at the level of minus 80 on the scale of non-experience. Deciding might be minus 20, hoping might be minus 10, and helping minus 5. On the other side of the line, out of experience, the scale will all be plus. From, let's say, plus 5 for accepting to plus 100 for sourcing. Okay. How do we go from minus 5 over to the plus side? You go through zero. Right. You go through zero. You have to go through nothing. You have to go through nothing. I want you to get this. Something is either experience or non-experience. It's either plus or it's minus. The light bulb is on or it's off. And to get from non-experience to experience, you have to go through nothing. A trainee named Sandy raises his hand and is acknowledged by the trainer. So you're arguing that if we learn from this training to stop trying to change, then we'll change. That's not it, Sandy. I've already told you, you'll get nothing from this training. Nothing will be changed, as it says in our pamphlets. The purpose of the ESD training is to transform your ability to experience living, so that the situations you have been trying to change, or have been putting up with, clear up, just in the process of life itself. And I warn you that the word transform doesn't mean change. It means, for us in this context, something like transubstantiate or alter the substance of your ability to experience living. Change implies only modification of form. We're talking about something as radical as the difference between plus one and minus one. Going from minus five to minus one, we can call that change. But going from minus one to plus one, that represents a 180 degree turnabout. That represents a transformation of your ability to experience living. And to get from minus one to plus one, you've got to go through nothing. Well, I think your semantic distinction is not that basic. The important thing is we can hope to change. Yeah, I don't want you to hope to change. Hope is fully in the realm of non-experience. And I don't want you to change. You're perfect the way you are. Just stay in the room and take what you get. Then, later, you can tell me whether what you get constitutes change or not. Our buttocks ache at this point. Our shoulders ache. Our stomachs have been growling for an hour and a half. Our bladders announce that their needs are being neglected. And we are beginning to feel that if we hear the word experience one more time, we may have to raise our hands and share a scream. How can the god and trainer keep talking? And he already knows all this stuff. And why can't I have one little cigarette? What the hell time can it be getting to be? Did they design these hotel chairs for maximum discomfort? Why don't all of us assholes agree to agree with everything Don says, so we can all go out and have supper? Tell me something you really know how to do. 
Andy, go ahead. I really know how to box. Fine. How do you box? You gotta stay in a crouch. Keep your gloves up. Keep your attention on both the guy's hands and torso at once. Then you do- Fine. But how do you box? You keep your left. If you're not a southpaw. In front of your face. Like this. And your right hand a little lower. Like this. Then. You box. But that's what I want to know. How to box. I can give you lessons. But how do I box? It takes too long to explain. How long? A couple of years. But I thought boxing was something you knew really well. It takes you two years to let me know. How? Longer, if you're any good. Thank you, Andy. I want you to tell me about something you really know, Tanya. I know how to sing. Fine. Tell me how to sing. Yeah. You open your mouth. It's done like this. And Tanya breaks out into a lovely soprano rendition of the opening phrase of Ave Maria. She stops after only 10 seconds. That's how you sing. Great. But how do you sing? I can't explain it in words. You mean something you really know you can't tell me how to do? Not singing. Thank you. Jed? Jed, a plump middle-aged man in a wrinkled suit, takes the mic. I really know how to walk. Fine. Tell me how to walk. Like this. Jed answers, and he walks back and forth four strides up and down the aisle, next to which he has been sitting. I see you, but how do you walk? You lift first one leg, then the other. Fine, but how do you walk? You lift your left leg, you know, by bending your knee so that the left foot rises about four inches off the floor. Then you sort of shift your weight forward and let the foot fall forward back to the floor. And as your left leg stiffens, you begin to bend the right knee and lift your right foot off the ground. Okay, but how do you walk? I just showed you. I saw you walking, but I want to know how to walk. I told you. You lift your left leg. But how do you lift your left leg? You lift your left leg. But how? Oh, Jesus, I don't know how. I thought lifting your leg was something you really knew. It is, damn it, but it's not something you can tell about. Thank you, Jed. Someone else. Bill? Bill, a gangly man with handlebar moustache and huge head of hair, has a smile on his face as he stands. What do you really know? I really know how to be an asshole. <laughs> Fine. Tell me how to be an asshole. Get into a dialogue with an ESD trainer. <laughs> but can you tell me how to be an asshole? No problem. Just be yourself. That's fine. But how can I be an asshole? I said just be yourself. No, Bill, that won't work. It so happens that anyone who just is himself has ceased to be an asshole. But thank you for sharing. When you really know something with complete certainty and reliability, then beliefs about it, or thinking about it, or feelings about it, are all irrelevant. You just know so thoroughly that beliefs and thoughts and feelings are not necessary and words are inadequate. In terms of certainty, we only cross the line into something really reliable when we get out of beliefs and feelings and simply observe. When you go beyond the level of observing, you get to the level of what we call realization. That's when you have an bingo experience. All right. Rick, is it? Go ahead, stand up, take the mic. Rick is a short, squat man with thick grey hair, and he wears boots and a striking purple shirt open at the collar. He is standing in the middle of one of the middle sections and speaks with obvious irritation. I have flown from El Paso, Texas, to take this training, and I don't know what is going on. Your folks are talking the craziest nonsense I have ever heard. What the hell do you all mean by this talk of levels of experience and levels of certainty? And what the hell is this business of your not knowing how to walk? As far as I am concerned, everybody here who's talked makes just as much sense as you do. Though that surely ain't much. 
far as I am concerned, believing something and thinking about something and doing something are a lot better than just sitting around looking and waiting for some damn fool bingo experience to come along. <laughs> I get that, Rick. We're talking about certainty, right? Damned if I know half the time what you're talking about. What's your job? I raise beef. I've got a thousand head of some of the best cattle in West Texas. Fine. Now let's say that I have a belief that raising cattle to slaughter them is morally wrong. I'm certain that what you're doing is evil. Well, I don't give a good goddamn what you think. I said I believe it. My next level of certainty would be that I think raising beef is bad. I still don't give a shit. Right. What I'm going to do is write a letter to the governor of Texas denouncing your ranch. Lots of luck. The governor of Texas butchers more cattle in a week than I do in a year. I feel very strongly that slaughtering cattle is cruel. Feel any damn way you like. Now, Rick, what happens if I stop believing and thinking and doing and feeling about your business and just go to your ranch and observe? You'd be showing a bit of sense. Right. And you see the diagram on the blackboard showing the levels of certainty. Rick squints towards the left blackboard on which are printed the levels of certainty. Relief about. Think about. Do about. And feel about. Below a horizontal line. An observation. Realization. Certainty of not knowing. A natural knowing. Above it. Jared analogous to the one on the other board showing levels of experience. Yeah, I see it. That's all it's saying. That the higher up we go on that scale, the more certain and reliable the knowledge we have. When we reach the highest level of certainty, we are at something we call natural knowing. Something like the way Jed knows walking or Tanya knows singing. And you can see now that the lowest form of certainty lies in the realm of belief. Depends on the belief, don't it? No, you asshole. All belief is the least reliable form of knowing. Belief represents uncertainty. People believe in God because they have no real certainty about her. Where there is a natural knowing of God, there is no need for belief. The highest form of certainty is something you know so thoroughly and so naturally that it's impossible to put into words. Yeah, well, I get that. That's why I find all the word business I've been hearing in here a lot of manure. It is manure. Everything I say is manure. I've warned you about that several times, haven't I? You have? I said don't believe a word I say. Then why do you say them? Why do you pump dirty water from a pond and squirt it into a stable? To clean out the shit. Well, guess what? That's why I have to pour words at you, assholes. All right, now we're going to do a process and then we're going to take a break. First, I'm going to tell you how you're going to do the process and then you're going to do it. I want you to listen carefully now as I tell you what I'm going to say and what you're going to do in the process. But don't assholes begin yet to do it. Do you understand? Good. First, I will instruct you to remove your glasses and contact lenses. Place any article on your lap onto the floor beneath your chair and sit comfortably with your arms and legs uncrossed. I will ask you to place your hands on your thighs and to close your eyes. Then I will instruct you to enter your space, which simply means to be quietly in your mind, wherever you are in your mind. Next, I will say, locate a space in the toes of your left foot. After giving you sufficient time to locate a space in the toes of your left foot, I will acknowledge you by saying fine or good or thank you and ask you next to locate a space in the bone of your left foot. After five or six seconds, I will say, good, locate a space in the bone of your left ankle. Such instructions and acknowledgements will continue until you have located spaces in parts of every area of your body up both legs, through your torso, to the top of your head, and up both arms to the shoulders. I will also ask you to observe any tension you may experience in the muscles in the forehead between the eyes, in the jaw, or in your tongue. For perhaps, Fifteen more minutes, the trainer describes in full detail the coming process and now answers questions from the trainees about the process. 
As he goes over the instructions and begins to answer questions, the tension in the room begins to drain. People are stretching and turning in their seats, yawning, exercising their eyes and fists. Several people begin whispering to each other. Aye, there's no talking in this room except when I say so. Get that. And shut up. And he goes on. At last he begins the process. Eyes closed, we sit quietly. I want you to locate a space in the toe of your left foot. Good. Locate a space in the bone of your left foot. Thine. Locate a space in the bone of your left ankle. Thine. Now locate a space in the toe of your right foot. Good. Locate a space in the bone of your right foot. Thine. Now locate a space in your right ankle. Good. Locate a space in your left shin bone. Thine. Now locate a space in your left knee. Thine. Locate a space in your right lower leg. Good. Locate a space in your right shin bone. Good. Now locate a space in your right knee. Thine. Locate a space in your left thigh bone. Thine. The effect of the trainer's loud voice is not, at first, relaxing, but since most of the trainees have become fatigued by the energetic interchanges between themselves and Don, the repetitiousness of the process instructions and acknowledgements soon has a hypnotically unwinding effect. The effects of the gradual relaxing into a less conscious state vary considerably among trainees. Before ten minutes have passed, and the trainer is still locating spaces only in the left thigh, we hear a woman softly crying. By the time he reaches the diaphragm and gives the instruction to follow, the inhale and exhale of the breath, another louder sobbing is heard. Later, a man's rhythmic snoring. But the process goes on and on, and for 25 minutes, the trainer's voice, still loud and intense, guides the trainees in locating spaces and relaxing muscles in the forehead, jaw, and tongue. The women who were crying come to stop crying, but another woman's sniffling can be heard, and the man's snoring continues with the soft, regular systole and distole of an ocean surf. When the entire body has been gone over and the muscles of the face totally relaxed and the trainees have taken three deep breaths and relaxed on the exhale, trainer begins to read a long set piece of prose poetry, a long declaration of self-affirmation saying yes to life and the expanding powers of the individual. I am and have been okay. I can do and be whatever I want to do or be, providing it does not bring harm to other human beings. It is all right for me to be this way. I love. I have been loved. I am loving. I recognize this and accept this. I can aspire to and have a higher state of awareness and consciousness. It is all right for me to do this. The affirmation goes on and on for almost five minutes. When the bodies of most of the trainees are completely relaxed and the process is over, the trainer asks the trainees to recreate the room around us 
in our mind's eye, and then, slowly, he brings us back into the gersh reality of the hotel ballroom. When our eyes are open, Richard is standing on the platform, ready to assist in the logistics of the long-awaited first break. He mechanically describes the locations of three different sets of bathrooms in the hotel, though most of us, undoubtedly, feel we could probably locate a restroom, even if there was only one in the whole universe, and that one camouflaged. There is to be no eating during this break, and all trainees are expected to be in our seats in precisely 30 minutes. To our amazement, we learn that the time is now 4.05. Except for a short bathroom break, we have been with the trainer for over eight consecutive hours. No wonder our asses ache. And then we were released. Charlotte, stand up. Charlotte stands and takes the mic. She is very young and blonde, wearing blue denim jeans and a blouse. Well, what happened to me during the process is that, well, I just relaxed. I mean, totally let go. And it felt great. And then, when you brought us out of it, the room seemed so beautiful. I mean, the rug, the colors of the rug were just terrific. It was like a grass high, if you know what I mean. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Charlotte. This is the first time I've said anything. And it's simply that nothing happened with me in the process. It seemed a big waste of time. Thank you, Mike. Can I ask a question? Save it till after the sharing, Mike. Okay. Thank you. Tom? Tom, the young, bushy-haired, beaded, gravelly-voiced man who earlier called the trainer an arrogant bastard, stands and takes the microphone. It was interesting. I do a lot of meditating, and I must admit that what he did with all those located spaces is put me into the same blissed-out state I usually don't reach until after an hour of deep breath counting. I was pretty surprised. It was okay. Thank you. Jennifer? Take the mic. Jennifer is a woman in her 40s, plump, and with a weary expression on her face. I'm afraid I'm one of those who cried. I don't know why. I was doing the process just like you said, and then, when you got to the abdomen, as soon as you said, locate a space in your abdomen, I was suddenly crying. It was ridiculous. I don't have the slightest idea why I was crying. That's okay, Jennifer. Just follow instructions and take what you get. Did you resist your crying? No. It was strange. It was a very quiet cry. I felt like you had pushed some button in my abdomen and some gentle faucet had been turned on. It was strange. Thank you, Jennifer. Tim, take the mic. Tim, a small balding man, wearing glasses. Oh, first I'd like to say that I am scared to be standing up talking. In fact, I'm scared shitless, but about the process. I found that, as soon as you said, go into your space, even before you talked about locating a space in your left foot. I mean, at the very beginning of the process. I felt panic. I was trembling during the whole thing. I don't think I located a single space. I spent all the time trying to stop feeling so afraid. I wasn't scared before any time during the whole day. This is off the wall. I can barely hold the mic. That's okay, Tim. Later today and tomorrow, we'll talk about handling things like that. You'll be able to look at your fear and by being really with it, it'll disappear. But don't cling to the life raft I just threw you. Stay with your experience. I don't expect you to get what I just said right now. For the time being, just be with your fear. Observe it. Don't fight it. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Kathy. Nothing special happened to me, but I'd like to share that someplace near the end of the process, I think I had an bingo experience. It was during locating a space in my right buttock, what was aching like hell at the time. It was the most vivid thing that had happened to me all day. I felt in touch with my body and really in touch with life. Thank you, Kathy.
David, take the mic, please. I'd like to know what the purpose of the process was, says David, a distinguished-looking man with thick, curly black hair and wearing dark, horn-rimmed glasses. No purpose. It's just part of the training. I mean, were we supposed to experience light? Or break down crying? Or just get some rest? You were supposed to follow the instructions and take what you get. What did you get, David? I didn't get anything. But, of course, I didn't follow the instructions either. I spent most of the time wondering what we were doing it for, and the rest daydreaming about eating cocovin. That's what you got, David. I get that you got you didn't follow instructions, wondered why we were doing the process, and imagined eating. If you want to live the rest of your life in the mind, go ahead, but if you'd like to experience something, I suggest you begin by following instructions. Thank you. And on goes the sharing. It is strange to experience the quiet sincerity with which people are sharing what happens to them. So different from the clashes with the trainer before the process and the break. Has he changed or have we? You are perfect. But there are barriers preventing you from experiencing and expressing your perfection. We have called this the first notion of ESD. And the second has to do with one of those barriers blocking you from feeling and expressing your perfection. Stated simply is this. Resistance leads to persistence. If you try to resist something or change something, it will become more solid. The only way to get rid of something is just to let it be. This doesn't mean to ignore it. Ignoring is actually a form of rejection and resistance. To ignore anxiety or anger is one of the asshole ways to try to eliminate it. To let something be means to observe it, stay in touch with it, but make no effort to change it. The third related notion is one you'll never believe, but since we don't want you to believe it, we can go right ahead and say it. The recreation of an experience makes the experience disappear. Re-experiencing something to completion disappears it. Jennifer, stand up. You say that trying to change something makes it persist. Says Jennifer, the plump woman who cried earlier. But I thought people were taught to learn to control their emotions. Doesn't that mean trying to resist and change them? Yes, and you know damn well it doesn't work. The whole world has been trying to change things for centuries, and they still persist. How many wars to end war have we fought? But if trying to control things doesn't work, then why do human beings keep trying to do it? Because human beings are assholes. I know it's a paradox, and not easy to get, but the effort to control or change something absolutely ensures its persistence. If you're angry and begin to get angry at your anger and try to change it, your anger will persist. If you're feeling tense and try to relax, you'll continue to be tense. If you have a headache and try to change it, your head will continue to ache as long as you're trying to get rid of it. Thank you, Jennifer. All right, David? I don't understand then, how change ever occurs. We're not talking about change. We're talking about whether something persists or not. If you try to change your tenseness, you may change the form of the tenseness, but the tenseness will still persist. You won't be able to disappear it. Substance will remain the same. All right then. Then I don't understand your theory about how anything ceases to persist. It is not a theory, asshole. Then what is it? Idea. Notion. No matter what you call it. It is really a theory or belief. No. You may make it into a theory or belief, but that's not what I'm putting out. What I'm putting out is the words. Trying to change something leads to its persisting, and these words. That's a statement of belief. It's a statement of my direct experience. How does that differ from a belief? Like night and day, asshole. A belief is a statement that does not come out of experience. Christ died, and on the third day rose from the dead. That's a statement too, but it has nothing to do today with anyone's direct experience. It's a belief. Okay then, you can call your statement a notion. I still don't see how, according to your notion, anything ceases to persist. It's simple. The recreation of an experience makes the experience disappear. What does that mean? To recreate an experience, you get totally in touch with it. You rebuild it. 
element by element, until it is entirely restructured. Then, paradox, it disappears. Now, how in God's name can you rebuild something like tenseness? Well, I'll tell you one thing, David. You first have to get in touch with the elements of tenseness. You can't recreate a house unless you know about wood and brick and nails and shingles. So, too, you can't recreate tenseness or any other experience unless you know what it's made of. Tenseness isn't like a house. It is an abstraction. No, it's a word people use to try to describe certain kinds of experience. Because people don't know their experience. Because they are living in the realm of non-experience, they don't really know any of the elements of tenseness. Well then, we're back where we started. You can't recreate tenseness without knowing the elements, and no one knows the elements. No, you're still not getting it. Everyone has experienced tenseness at least once, and what we want for them is to experience it again. If they'd stop resisting it, stop trying to change it, and just be with it, observe it, they would, in fact, recreate the experience of tenseness, and it would disappear. Impossible. Of course it's impossible. I never said it was anything else. In a couple of hours, you'll see one person after another come up on this platform with me, and each one will say that he's tense, or tired, or has a headache, and you know what? I will ask him to observe and recreate his tension, or tiredness, or headache, and it will disappear. It will disappear. Totally impossible. Total nonsense. Only it works. I'll believe it when I see it. Don't believe it, no matter how many times you see it. Experience it when you see it. Well, since I won't see it in any case, the semantical difference. Fuck your semantical differences. I'm talking about real differences, and it's only your asshole reasonableness that keeps you from experiencing them. I'm not going to argue with you. David says, and he hands the mic back to the assistant and sits down. You're getting smart. You can't win in here. Nobody wins in here except me. Unless I decide to let you in. It ought to be perfectly clear to everyone now that you're all assholes. And I am God. Only an asshole would argue with God. I may let you be gods too, but that will come later. Thank you, David. Yes, Marie? Do you mean that this morning, when I wanted to vomit, that I shouldn't have resisted, but just vomited? When you felt nauseous, you probably panicked and tried to change it, right? Yes. And what happened? It got worse. It got worse. It persisted. Assholes. What happened after I finished showing you how to use the bag? Well, I gradually stopped feeling sick. Fine. What did you experience just after you sat down and I started talking to someone else? I remember vividly seeing how clean the inside of the paper bag was. I also noticed that it was big enough to take, whatever I might give it. I also felt that I would have no trouble using it. Aunt, well, I didn't have to vomit anymore. She didn't have to vomit anymore. You know why? Do any of you assholes know why? Shock. Because she was so emotionally upset with you, the anger dominated the Nossa. Well, shit. Marie, were you angry and upset with me? No. No. Then why did Marie suddenly stop feeling sick? Angela? Because. I think I've got it. Because when she... When she saw that the paper bag was big enough and felt she could use it. And maybe, too, that you didn't care whether she vomited or not. That seems to me important. Then she was free to vomit. She didn't have to resist it. She didn't have to change it. Marie and Angela are both standing, and the trainer lets Angela's answer hang there in the room for all of us to hear. Yes, exactly. She didn't have to resist it. She didn't try to change it, assholes. She accepted it, got in touch with it, and it disappeared. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Marie. <laughs> Trying to change an experience makes it persist. Recreating an experience. Accepting it. Being with it. Observing it. 
makes it disappear. All bullshit. All nonsense. It works. Yes, Jerry. I've got a habit of getting angry with people who try to push other people around. Especially who try to push me. The anger is justified a lot of the time. But I got this morning that I think I'd rather not bother to be right about it. I'd rather not be angry. And, in fact, I've learned to control it pretty well. For example, I've got a boss who's real pompous, and when he orders me to do something, I'd love to tell him he's being unfair. Frankly, I'd love to punch him in the mouth, but instead I say, Yes, sir, and go do what he wants, counting my breaths like crazy and looking forward to a drink at lunchtime. The anger is kept under control. That is, when it arises, I successfully change it into something which will permit me to avoid doing something I might regret. So, each time, you've been trying to resist and change your anger? Of course. And I have. And is your anger persisting? Yes. But not the way. You're goddamn right it persists. And it will persist the rest of your fucking life, and you know it. But I changed it. You've modified it. But it still persists. You haven't disappeared it. What am I supposed to do? Tear the boss to pieces. Stop resisting your anger and start observing. Stop trying to eliminate your anger. Just witness it. Be with it. Get in touch with it exactly what anger is for you. Your bodily sensations. Feelings. Your attitudes. What good will that do? None whatsoever. Except that your anger will probably disappear. You people all know you've been trying to change your lives for years, and they don't change. The things you work on persist. It's not that you're weak or not trying hard enough. It's just that you're assholes, that's all. You're using the wrong method. If you don't like something about yourself or someone else, the thing to do is just observe it, experience it, get in touch with it. You say, your boss is an irritable pompous bastard? Fine. Wonderful. See how many specific manifestations of his irritability, pomposity, and bastardry you can observe and experience. He makes you angry. Great. Exactly how. What is your anger? Weet it. Measure it. See what color it is. See what muscles it is affecting, what sensations it produces, in what parts of your body. Really get in touch with your exact bodily sensations and feelings in relation to your boss. Presto. You know what will happen. I'll get a headache. That's exactly what usually happens. Right? That's what always happens. You know what your head is trying to tell you. It's trying to tell you to stop resisting and pay attention. If you were groove to the boss, you'd find it would be groovy. You mean the boss will cease to be a pompous jerk? You will cease to experience him as a pompous jerk. You just told us that we were getting fully in touch with his being a jerk. That's right. If we're in touch with it, how can we cease to experience it? The only way to cease to experience something is to get in touch with it. It is a totally impossible paradox. If you fully experience something, then the experience will disappear, and you'll have a new one. I just don't understand. That's because you're in your asshole mind. I don't want you to understand it. Understanding gets the booby prize. Just try it and experience it. You can even experience a way you're being an asshole. Maybe it's you. That's the asshole. Great. Now just get in touch with your anger. See what you're experiencing right now. I'm mad. That's closer. Exactly what are you feeling right now? Jerry hesitates and then appears to examine himself. My muscles are tense, and my stomach churning, and you're a fascist. Yet, two experiences and a belief. Which muscles are tense? My arm muscles, my jaw muscles, my stomach muscles, abdomen. Great. Which jaw muscles? The ones, well, the ones, through here. Says Jerry, pointing up beside his ear. Good. Where's the tenseness in your belly? Ew. Here. Jerry replies, pointing to just above his belly button. How far in is this tenseness? About two inches. Good. Is it a pain, or pressure, or what? It is thou. Just sort of a sensation. A tenseness. Fine. 
Describe what's happening now with your arm muscles. Jerry glances automatically at his left arm. They're still a little tense. You've got two fucking miles of arm muscles. Where exactly? Actually, it's in my fingers. And up here. Around the shoulder. Great. Tell us exactly what sensations you have in your fingers. Actually, they are okay now. Anne, now look at your abdomen again. Describe what you're experiencing there. A little heaviness above the navel. Well, how big is the heaviness? About a golf ball now. How far in is it? It's kind of fuzzy. Maybe two inches. Great. What color is it? Color? What color is this heaviness? Jerry spends a long time with his head lowered, looking within. No, I just can't say. Okay. Tell me what size the heaviness is now. It is the... Well, actually there's nothing there now. There's no more heaviness. I see. Are you still experiencing anger at me? No. Are you still experiencing me as a stupid fascist? Just as you asked me the question, I felt a rush of resentment. But I realized that, basically. No, a fascist maybe, but not stupid. You got in touch with your anger, and it disappeared. For a moment, Jerry stands uneasily, in silence, shifting his considerable weight from foot to foot. Then he shakes his head and grins. It sure did disappear. What would have happened five minutes ago if, when you were angry, I told you to try to control yourself? To change your anger into peacefulness? Your resentment of me into love for me? I would have told you to stick it up. I would have remained angry. The anger would have persisted? Yeah. Thank you. For our second process, we assume comfortable positions with arms and legs uncrossed and follow the instructions of the trainer in locating spaces throughout our bodies. Before 20 minutes have passed, the continual background chatter of most of our minds, Yameoma, in ESD terms, has quieted, and one or two people are crying and a few sleeping. We relax the muscles in our foreheads, jaws, and tongues. We breathe deeply. We listen to the long affirmation of life read to us by the trainer. Finally, we are asked to create for ourselves an idyllic beach on which we can play and feel completely relaxed. The trainer assists us in seeing and feeling the sand dunes, the reeds, the seashells, the hotness of the sand, the line of seaweed running parallel to the waterline, the blue sky blotched with clouds, the pieces of bleached driftwood, the crushed empty beer can, the charcoal remains of a fire, the gulls circling above a decaying fish. He assists us in hearing the cries of the gulls, the hissing and crash of the surf, and in feeling the warm saltiness of the seawater washing about our feet. A tape recording begins to play, the sounds of waves crashing rhythmically against our beach and we are asked to play there. However, we feel like playing. And many, many fantasy-filled minutes later, we are at last given our long-promised 90-minute break to eat dinner. Like school children, held too long after class by a strict teacher, the trainees scatter out into the streets outside the hotel as if onto a playground. Around the tables at the various restaurants scattered in the vicinity of the hotel, many of the trainees are somewhat subdued. Whether it is exhaustion from the long day, serenity produced by the second guided meditation on our beaches, or our vague dread that most of our normal dinner time talk with new acquaintances will be ego-inspired, game-playing is not easy to determine. Harold, stand up. Take the mic. Says the trainer after the dinner break. What happened to me at the beach was first enjoyable and then frightening. I was there. I could really hear the waves and feel the water. And then you said play at our beach. And I figured I'd play with my two children. But when I tried to get them onto the beach with me, they wouldn't come. They just wouldn't materialize. Next, I tried to get a couple of my business friends. But nothing. Nobody would materialize. 
It was weird. And I realized that I never really play with anyone. Ever. It isn't that they won't play with me. It is I never play with them. I don't understand why I feel this nausea. Both times, in both processes, as soon as you've finished with locating spaces in our legs, I began to feel sick to my stomach. There are no thoughts. No memories. Just nausea. Why? And when you asked us to play, I was suddenly running along the beach, just jogging along at the edge of the surf. And you said, play, and I thought, this isn't playing. I've got to imagine myself playing. But I kept running. The running was so vivid. Just running down the beach. Not running away from anything. Not running towards anything. Just running along my beach, running. And not playing. I didn't cry this time. I just sat in the sand and watched the waves come. Hurling in and slide. Along the sand. And it felt good. And when it was time to play, I built a sandcastle. And I did something, this time, that I have never done in real life. I built the sand castle right close to the waves rather than way back. I knew when the tide came in it would destroy what I was building but somehow it didn't matter. It made me happy. When a wall got washed away it was as nice as building it. I mean, how the fuck is anyone supposed to play at the beach when the lady next to me is throwing up all over the place? The whole process is ridiculous. The damn tape recorder sounded like the IRT subway train coming in and was about as relaxing as that. I didn't get anything but irritability and wondering what the fuck I was doing, lying on the floor, playing silly mind games. I've never smelled. Never in my life have I been able to distinguish odours. And yet, when you said decaying fish, I smelled for the first time in my life. I smelled something. I know it will seem strange, but the smell of the decaying fish was beautiful. Just beautiful. I just wanted to say that I didn't get anything out of the process. I thought it was a waste of time. Mainly, I slept. So that was sure one groovy beach. The sky was as blue as it ever gets on grass, and I could even feel the sun hot on my belly. But the funny thing was, when you asked us to play, I began wading out into the ocean. And then swimming. I mean, not piddling around in the surf like I usually do, but swimming straight out. Straight out into the fucking ocean. Straight out. I mean, wow, that was really heavy. I'm glad you pulled us back into the room before it was too late. You're all murdering life. The trainer is saying later on, after more sharing. You're all trying to change yourselves. You're all trying to change what is. And thus, you are never actually living what is. You're killing who you are, every day of your lives, by not being who you are, where you are. You are all liars, and lying about where you are at prevents you from getting to where you intend to go. Let's say I'm a good, typical, normal human being standing here in the exact center of this platform. Being a good, normal human and totally out of touch with where I am. I lie that I have a belief. That I am a radical. A leftist. I lie that I'm actually on the left-hand side of the platform and far to the front. Definitely far to the front. Over there. That corner over there. Great. I'm in the center of the platform and I lie to myself that I'm on the left forward corner. Now look what happens. I want to get to the right front corner of the platform. I think I'm over there in the left front corner, so I think I have to walk due west 30 paces. Fine. I walk west 30 paces. And look what happens. I fall off the platform flat on my face. The trainer shouts as he mock falls off the far edge of the platform. As he returns to the center of the stage, he seems to be staring fiercely at the audience. You lie. You lie about where you are so that when you try to change where you are, you just make a royal mess of things. 
you might, just as well, know that you can't possibly get from here to there unless you're actually here in the first place. You lie. You sense you're stuck and want to break out, but you can't possibly go where you want to go until you find out where the fuck you actually are. Trying to change a thing leads to the persistence of the thing. The only way you're ever going to eliminate anything is to observe. Find out what it is and where it is. The complete experiencing of the thing, being totally with it, leads to its disappearing. Tonight we're going to do a few processes in which you will completely experience your tiredness or your headaches and they will disappear. No big deal. Tomorrow you'll get to experience some really big things in your lives and they'll disappear, at least for some of you. Observation and recreation of things disappears them. Obviously impossible. Obviously nonsense. Who'd like to be first? David? Says Don, pointing to the tall, well-dressed man who has often argued with him. It's still not clear to me why resistance is not the best strategy to invoke against obviously undesirable things. Well, David, since you seem to be a very rational and intellectual man with a reading acquaintance with a wide variety of belief systems, you might recall that the Chinese knew all about this business 5,000 years ago. They called it yin-yang. If somebody pushes and you push back, you will very likely have pushing forever. You can't have darkness without light. Darkness only exists because of the resistance of light. Good can only exist with the resistance of bad, and bad can exist only because of the resistance of good. Up exists because of the pull of down. Eliminate the resistance, eliminate the polarity, eliminate the effort to change, and presto, you've got nothing. Nothing. And when you've got nothing, then you really have something. You seem to be saying that a good person should stop trying to avoid the bad. That's right, David. That's bullshit. That's right, David. And your counter theory is Dave shit. Good people have been trying to eliminate badness for a million years, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It works better than not doing anything. Not so, David. I know the myth is that if we all believed in doing good and avoiding evil, that all would be well. But the sad truth is that the man who kills his neighbor always believes in good and evil. His own good and his neighbor's evil. It's doing nothing that works. You may not be able to get that yet, but the Taoists knew it 4,000 years ago. But who's tired? Anyone in the room tired? A score of groans and a dozen hands go up. Fine. Who would be willing to come up here and have their tiredness disappear? All right, Sam. Come on up. Sam, a rumble man with a lunging gait, comes from his seat at the side of the room up onto the platform. Sam's eyes seem red and he does look tired. He sits down on one of the two high stools and automatically slumps forward. He glances briefly up to his right at the trainer and then down again at the feet of the people in the front row. Sam, are you willing for your tiredness to disappear? Yes, I am. Fine. Close your eyes. Go into your space. Tell me, Sam. Are you tired? Yes. Good. Where do you experience tiredness? In my shoulders. Fine. Where else do you experience tiredness? In my neck. In my lower legs. Good. Where else do you experience tiredness? In my shoulders. My upper back. My eyes. My eyes are tired. Okay. What are you experiencing right now in your shoulders? Heaviness. Where exactly? In my... Across the back part. Upper part. Thine. Describe the heaviness. Sam is sitting more erect now, obviously concentrating on his inner sensations. Well, actually right now. It's not there. Thine. Describe to us how your eyes feel. Little burning sensations in each eye. Okay. How strong a burning sensation? Just little flashes like... How many flashes per second? They've sort of stopped. Sam says softly, and he suddenly opens his eyes wide and stares out at the audience. In fact, I feel great. Are you tired? No, it's all gone. I feel great. Fine. Thank you, Sam.
Sam steps down to light applause. Several trainees look skeptical and a half dozen hands are raised. When did you plant Sam? Someone shouts. The trainer apparently doesn't hear. He calls on Jerry, the big man whose anger at the trainer was disappeared earlier. It seems to me that all that happened was that after Sam got up on the platform, he found what he was doing interesting. And thus, he wasn't bored and tired anymore. Fine, Jerry. I get that. But remember, this process is intended to show you how little you assholes ever observe. Do you get that, Sam? Sitting down was experiencing tiredness and not liking it. He got up here and observed it, and he found he wasn't tired. Maybe, but I'm not sure observation is what disappeared it. Great. It's ridiculous to think that his looking at and describing his tiredness would disappear it. Isn't it? This. Especially to disappear it so fast. This. And it may come back again for Sam in another 10 or 15 minutes. That's right. All that is sometimes a problem in the training. We get people up here who say they are exhausted, have been exhausted for four hours, and we ask them to describe their tiredness, and 30 seconds later they say, Oh, it's all gone. I feel great. Or a person has had a headache all day, and we get them sitting up here and relaxed, and we ask them how big their headache is, and they say, What headache? <laughs> and sometimes, half an hour after they've sat down, they manage to get their headache again. We bring them up here, and presto. It disappears. Our problem is that the fucking process works so fast. The process of ceasing resistance. Ending persistence. That you assholes know it's all fake. Alright, let's make a list of the causes of a headache. You mentioned, Beverly, that you were experiencing tension, which was giving you a headache. Are there any other causes of a headache? The trainer goes to the blackboard and quickly writes tension in the top left corner. Anyone else? Yes, Marsha? I often have sinus headaches, especially during flu season. Fine. Let's put sinus under tension. Ten? A hangover. Right, hangover. The trainer writes hangover under sinus. Many hands are popping up. He points to another. Eye strain causes headaches. Good. Eye strain. As he writes, he asks Marsha to come up and help him write on the board. A young woman goes up, smiling and looking a little awkward at first, but quickly getting into the serious business of writing down the myriad causes of headaches. Anger. Polio. Worry. Stomachache. Listening to the trainer. Hit on the head. Too much sun. Overfatigue. Jack, would you give Marsha a hand up here at the blackboard? Thank you. Jack goes up willingly. The pace quickens. The list grows. The apparent causes of a headache are endless. Jealousy. Noise. Too cold outside. Glare. Fee hurt. Anxiety. Hatred. Hypertension. Fear. Indigestion. Poor posture. Heat. Prostration. Hunger. Disorder, not enough sleep, depression, watching television too long, argument with spouse, too many children, riding the subway, faulty contact lens, excessive lovemaking, inflamed brain capillaries, lunch with the boss, tight hats, bed smells, guilty feelings. The list spills over to fill the other blackboard. Okay. Third, let's take one of those headaches and do a process that will demonstrate that you people don't know how to observe. I don't mean one of your 24-year headaches. I mean, one that's been around for four or five hours, more or less. Is someone willing to come up here and sit in this chair and be with their experience of a headache in front of the group? The hands that were so willing, a few minutes ago, to commit causes of headaches to the air disappear to about three. Fine. Good. Gentlemen, will you come up here? How long have you had this headache? About an hour. Are you willing to be with your experience of a headache in front of the group? Yes. She says quietly. He directs her to the tall black plastic chair. 
Are you willing to experience out your headache? Now in front of everyone, and if it disappears, let it disappear. And if it remains, let it remain. Yes. Okay, Joan. Relax, close your eyes, and go into your space. He gives her a minute. He is standing close to the chair. Fine. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Joan, describe your headache to us. Tell us what your experience of your headache is. Well, it's like a pressure in my head. The trainer looks at the audience and back at Joan. Where in your head? It's behind my eyes. Behind my eyebrows. Fine. How big is it? It's the size of a brick from temple to temple. What color is it? Red. Fine. What shape is it? Oblong with sharp edges. How far and behind your eyebrows is it? About half an inch, and it goes in about two inches. Good. What size is your headache? A brick. What color is it? Sort of reddish-orange. Good. What shape is it? Rounded, smooth brick. How big is it? Like a blackboard eraser. Great. What color is it? It's orange with a little gray. What shape is it? It's fuzzy. Like a scoop of ice cream. Good. How big is it? Maybe a golf ball. What color is it? Yellow, some gray. What shape is it? Round. How big is it? She's quiet again for almost 15 seconds. The audience is totally silent. It's almost not there. I guess the size of a pea. Fine. What color is it? Nothing. It's gone. It's not there. She opens her eyes with a blank expression, closes them again, and then repeats. It's gone. Thank you, John.